Thank you for joining us for the sermon podcast of Northwest Presbyterian Church in Dublin, Ohio. Our church exists to celebrate the gospel through Christ-centered study, worship, and prayer, to connect in community through fellowship, accountability, shepherding, and outreach, and to love our city through sacrificial giving of time, treasure, and talents so that it might flourish as a place where Jesus is known. For service times and more information about our church, visit npcdublin.org. And now, Pastor Dave Shooter. Well, I recently ended a phone call uh, with a telemarketer and had a horrible feeling in my soul. Usually, uh, with respect to telemarketers, the horrible feeling in my soul is at the beginning of the call, uh, when I realize that I have been duped into taking the call uh, you know, the phone will ring and I'll think, do I really know someone in Grove City? And I'll think about it and I'll think about it and then I'll answer it. And I'm like, oh, you got me telemarketer. And now I can't get off the call. But in this particular moment, uh, the horrible feeling was at the end of the call because mostly people text me. And uh, usually the only people who call me on the phone are Kim, Annika, uh, a few others, and the phone calls usually go like this. The phone rings. I'm like, oh, it's Kim. Oh, hi, Kim. And, you know, conversation in Kim tones and Kim words. And then uh, the, uh, the conversation ends, and I say, yes, I'll, I'll get that from the grocery store. And see you later. Love you. Bye. Boop. Or it's Annika. Oh, hi, Annika. Conversation in Annika tones. And uh, bibbity bobbity boo and okay I'll get that from Kroger and I love you and I'll see you later and the horrible feeling uh, that I had as I hung up the phone was the the see you later love you part of the call <laughs> you have you done this <laughs> had I just told AJ from you know drapery mania that that I loved him? I, I wasn't sure. I, I couldn't remember. And then I wasn't sure if I needed to walk it backwards. Hey, AJ, just before we hang up, I, I need to confirm that I don't actually love you. Because that would be weird, too. I mean, that wouldn't make any sense to AJ if I hadn't said, see you later, love you. But if I had pledged undying loyalty and affection to AJ, he knows where I live. And uh, here's the problem. You know, we, we end our conversations and our letters and our emails and our texts very predictably. And we end them so predictably uh, that the conclusions can lose their meaning. And we don't want that to come uh, into our understanding as we wrap up First Thessalonians this morning. Uh, by my count, this is our 15th. And final sermon on 1 Thessalonians. Uh, these are Paul's concluding words to some of the first Christians uh, that we know of. And Paul was wanted them and has wanted us, as we've studied through this passage, to live well in light of the fact that King Jesus is coming back. That has been his goal, his prayer for the Christians. Reading the letter is to grow in love for each other and for the world in which he has placed us, not that we would grow in worldliness, not to love the things of the world, but to love those in the world, uh, particularly with the gospel. This was his prayer 
uh, in the middle of the book in chapter 3, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. His final words sound so familiar. Every letter from Paul in the New Testament ends with a commendation of grace. Uh, Verses 23, 24, Now may the God of peace himself and following are often the closing benediction of a Christian worship service. We use them here as the closing benediction, and we can use them so frequently uh, that they start to lose their impact. It's the signal that church is over. But if we skip past these verses as simply predictable, customary conclusion, you know, he's writing his letters, stuff to the Thessalonians, bibbidi-boppidi-boo, love you, then we'll miss the real treasure. And I don't want us to do that because in these verses, Paul takes up one more time the question that is running in the background of the heart of every man, every woman, every child, doubters, unbelievers, Christian worshipers alike. And that question is simply this, can I know that I will make it to heaven? Can I know that I will make it to heaven? Can I have assurance, to use the theological word, can I have assurance? Is there a way to be certain that uh, whether I die before or am alive at the end of history, that God will welcome me into his presence? And Paul's closing words to these Christians uh, and to us as well are about assurance, they are about affection, and they are about authority, and we need to pay attention to each of them. The first word, assurance, is simply this, that God finishes his project. God finishes his project. When you are part of launching a big project, let's say that you are part of launching a new business, there's a huge difference, isn't there, between being the entrepreneur, the person who has put her wealth and her reputation, and her skill on the line. There's a big difference between being the entrepreneur and being the staff, right? Uh, That the entrepreneur is invested in a way that the staff is not, that the entrepreneur is all in. And in the project of salvation, the project of rescuing people from sin and from the consequence of sin, which is ultimately final and forever death. That is what is at stake in the project, that God is all in. Salvation is his project. He uses the church. He uses individual Christians. He uses preachers and parents and Bible translators and missionaries and pilots. But the outcome of having a saved people found blameless at the end of history is his project. And Paul underscores that in verse 23. He actually starts the verse with the word himself. It's less obvious to us in our English Bibles, uh, but if we were to translate it very literally, we would read something like himself, the God of peace. Himself, the God of peace. We smooth out the English language so that it reads 
Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The project of sanctification. Fancy word for being made holy. The project of sanctification is God's project. He has been at this project actually from before the foundation of the world. Paul mentions this to the Thessalonians at the beginning of the letter in verses that we looked at some time ago, verse 4 of chapter 1, that believers are loved by God. He has chosen you. God's project worked itself out in time. And uh, if you are a believer, you can think about this. If you are not yet a believer, I encourage you to think about this, uh, that there was a moment, perhaps uh, as a young child with mom and dad, perhaps as a student at school or on campus, perhaps, uh, perhaps this morning, may it be, perhaps this morning, through the powerful operation of the Holy Spirit, as our catechism puts it, uh, God applies the death and resurrection to you. That he says that what Jesus did in history, what the church will commemorate uh, in a few weeks on Good Friday and on Easter Sunday, what happened at a real point in time is uh, applied to you spiritually, that, that he takes the achievement of Jesus, that, that all that Jesus did in obeying God's law where we fail, uh, and all that Jesus did in accepting God's penalty that we deserve, and all that Jesus did in rising to new life, uh, that he takes all of Jesus' achievement and he applies it spiritually to you, that he renews you in your whole self, again in the words of our catechism, after the image of God, that he puts the seeds of repentance unto life and all other saving graces into your heart. There was a moment in time where this amazing supernatural transaction occurred, and it's all God's project. And uh, if you are a Christian, I think that it is just worth pausing to remember because sometimes we wonder and sometimes I wonder, like, we wonder, I, I just wish I could see something amazing spiritual happen. Do you ever wonder that? You're like, I don't know, Dave, that feels like a pastor trick question. I am not going on the record for your trick question. But sometimes we wonder, we're like, I, I want to see God do something awesome. If you are sitting next to a Christian, you're sitting next to something awesome. That there was a moment when that person was spiritually dead and the Holy Spirit took the achievement of Jesus and made it real for that person. That the Holy Spirit took the achievement of Jesus and he made it real for you. There's nothing more awesome that you are going to encounter than the amazing privilege of conversion. And it's God's project. It's been forever envisioned. Uh, it starts in eternity past, and then it continues as he brings us to faith and stirs up these graces in our heart that he, in, uh, again, in the words of the catechism, increases and strengthens them over a lifetime. So, so the project is going to take a lifetime. But in the course of the project, we are going to more and more die unto sin and then one day, the project is going to be complete. 
And, and the day of completion is either uh, the day when we pass from this earthly existence into the presence of the Lord, or at such time as the Lord returns and, and the church uh, meets him, those who of us who are alive meet him in the air. Now, that is the day of completion. And when Paul prays, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, what he means is that God's project, which will be brought to completion, is going to come to bear on every aspect of who we are. Think about this for a moment. Uh, when he says spirit, soul, and body, he's not so much suggesting that if we had the most uh, sophisticated imaging equipment available, that we could somehow discern that humans are made up of three different components, spirit, soul, and body. He's not so much suggesting that, because there are other times in the New Testament where humans are described just as body and soul. So we don't want to overfocus on that as much as to follow his train of thought where he says that uh, the power of God to save his people is coextensive with all of uh, what a person is. That, that he is going to do his saving work in your body. He's going to do his saving work in your spirit. He's going to do his saving work in your soul. In, in every aspect of a person that can be touched by sin and the impact of sin. Our, our physical lives which are impacted by sin, we are, we are wearing out, are we not? Sin impacts our lives. Sins done by others to us impact our lives, our physicality, our emotional life. That, that God through His Spirit is applying salvation to all of who we are. So that when His project is done, all of who we are will be saved. All of who we are will be saved. He is working in every area where sin impacts. He's working in our hearts to change the anger, the fear, the lust, the meanness. But he's also redeeming our broken emotions and anxieties that emerge, sometimes because of the sin of others, sometimes because of the simple circumstances of living in a broken world. That's amazing. Who else has that kind of power? Who else has that kind of power to work salvation at that level of precision? And Paul wants the Thessalonians and us to do more than wish for it to be true. Because it's easy to hear about salvation, I think, when we talk about it in its, in its biggest relief. And so I, I wish it would be true. I want it to be true. I hope it's true. I'll even live in the direction of it being true. And Paul does something here as he prays for the Thessalonians, which is actually transformative. I, I, I learned this week that in the Greek-speaking world, where there are all kinds of religions and all kinds of prayers being made, uh, that the prayers of pagans were expressed as wishes in, uh, for this reason. Uh, the prayers would be expressed as wishes because the pagans weren't sure that the gods or goddesses would really answer them. And so they were trying to create some kind of hedge in their religion. 
They were trying to create some kind of hedge in case they were praying to their favorite goddess and their favorite goddess did not come through for them. Say, well, it was just a wish. Like, I, I wished I'd be cured, but it wasn't on her agenda. And so we're not doing that. But it's okay. My faith is not rocked because it was just a wish. It was a wish prayer. If you're a, a teacher of grammar, uh, this was the... Um, this was expressed in a particular verb mood that expresses wish. And Paul uses that same mood here, but he then he transforms it because he, he states it in the way that pagans would pray, may God do this. But he transforms it by rooting the prayer in God's character and in his power. So he, he, he prays in verse 23, now may the God of peace do this. But then he gets to verse 24, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. He will surely do it. He, he roots our hope in God's faithfulness. Faithfulness is what God does because faithful is who God is. When you, you run it all the way back through Scripture, you might come to the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 7. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God. Or you'd hear through Isaiah, the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who's chosen you. Or as Peter puts it, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Or famously, John, in the, the order that becomes our confession of sin, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Assurance is God's project, and he's faithful to do it. He can't fail. He's faithful. And so assurance that we will be gathered to the Lord in heaven Assurance that we will finish the race stands on this truth that God finishes what he starts. He finishes what he starts. He recovers the investment he makes in the giving of his son. For this young church and for all Christians, Paul expects that this will fuel courage. Remember, we've seen this in the Thessalonian church over the months. And, and if you're just uh, joining us for the first time this morning, let me explain that this is a young church that's experiencing a lot of cultural pressure for being Christians, and Paul wants them to be courageous. Well, what more fuel for courage would you need than assurance that God's going to finish his project? Because when, it, when everything else is blowing up around you, what you need to know is not so much are you strong, but is God faithful? Will he do it when you don't feel like doing it? Will he do it when you wonder if it's worth doing? He will do it. You can be courageous. You can have courage in trial. And you can be confident in your witness. Remember, Paul wants these Christians to grow in love, not only for the community that they're in, the church, but also in their witness to the world. Well, if you're not certain that God's going to finish the work, you're not going to be very bold to talk someone else into joining the work that you're not sure God's going to finish. It would be like AJ from Draperies R Us calling me, but not really liking Draperies himself. But Paul, Paul says that we can be confident in our witness 
because God is faithful. So that when the, when the people that we're witnessing to are not immediately receptive to the gospel, which is often the case, and we share with them again, and we share with them again, and we share with them again. So why should I be confident in sharing? Like they don't seem very interested in Jesus or they've got some problems with Jesus or they have some objections to Jesus or they don't like Christians. Remember uh, Patrick Lewis's obstacles to faith last, last week, very helpful. You know, they think that you're weird for sharing the gospel to them. You can be confident, not because you're so great, but because God is great. He is faithful. He's the one that we're pointing people to. We can have assurance. So Paul wants us to have assurance. God wants us to have assurance. One of the, uh, one of the um, I've got a, a moment here. One of the old pastors that I read this week, um, Anglican pastor in a different generation, said one of the great fruits of assurance for the Christian is it gets us outside of the self-talk of our head. It, I mean, he, he didn't put it exactly that way. He used probably, you know, some fancy words and some 18th century English words to do it. But, but what he meant was if, if you don't have assurance and you're a Christian, you're always walking around, well, does God love me? Does God love me? Well, what can I do to make him love me more? I'm worried. I, I'm stressed. You know, I just blew it again. Maybe now he doesn't love me. But, but, Paul says that our hope is rooted in God's faithfulness. And, and when we are brought to that point, we can get out of the self-talk in our own head. And we, we can be bold, not because we're doing so well, but because he has done so well. It's a helpful word. Well, Paul moves on to affection, that God's project includes a forever family I cannot confirm that some decades ago, verse 26 was frequently memorized in the middle school youth group uh, that I was a part of. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. <laughs> I can't confirm that this was trotted out when visitors would come and uh, they would try to be convinced that this was our common greeting in youth group, when in fact it wasn't. Uh, and it doesn't mean uh, what the first guy in youth group who hit adolescence thought the rest of people thought it really meant. Um, kissing, but not on the mouth, was common, as the commentators teach us, and it could symbolize honor, respect, friendship, family love. And here Paul applies it in the direction of family greeting. And I think back in, you know, middle school youth group, it was the kissing that caught our eye. But really what ought to have caught our eye, I think, more is the family language that he uses. All the brothers. All the brothers. Because think about the people that we've met in the Thessalonian church. We don't know very many of their names, but we know from the letter that they included very wealthy people who were patrons of clients who were kind of middle-class people who would uh, be, you know, receiving money and food and clothing from these patrons in order to advocate for them in the public forums. It included working-class laborers. Very, very likely the congregation included slaves. So the congregation included free people and slaves. In other words, uh, it included people who would never hang out together. And we actually can confirm this when we look at Acts 
chapter 17, which reports Paul's visit to Thessalonica, we read this, that some Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women, Jews, Greeks, influencers, slaves. High society, workaday. People who did not normally associate with each other are now called to treat each other as family, to step over the social and ethnic boundaries that people love to create, and to show actual affection for each other. That's what's going on in this verse. That, that, that Paul is saying in, in this community of people from all over Thessalonica, maybe people who you used to not even like, maybe people that you used to exploit, that now you're in the same family and you have to treat each other accordingly because God's project is to build a forever family. God's project extends to all of us individually, but salvation is never just an individual experience because he puts us into a community and the community is marked as family. And the family of the church is to have affection for one another. And I think there's actually a strong connection between the first and second points in this way, that if you have assurance that God will finish his project in your life, and may you have that assurance if you're a Christian, then you should have the same kind of assurance for the other Christians in your life. Even the ones who drive you crazy. Like, Dave, other Christians don't drive me crazy. I'm not falling for that one either. You and your tricky sermon illustrations. But if you are sure that heaven is your final home, it is also the final home of other people in your church and of other people in the church around the world. And it should shape the affection that we are to have for each other. Paul wants the church to grow in love for each other and for all. And so I think that in terms of application, certainly patience, affection and patience would be a key application. The more we appreciate that sanctification is God's project, and that he is accomplishing it on his timeline. And that his timeline is the end of our lives or the end of history. Then the more our affection for each other will be marked by patience. Here's the tricky thing. The longer you stay in a church family, the more reasons you will find to temper your affection for other Christians because the more you will know each other's persistent doubts, the more you will know the wrestling with God that never quite stops, the more you will hear prayer requests that span decades, the more you will be aware of your clergy's weaknesses. You will, if you stay in a church long enough, have your feelings hurt by someone else in the church. You will have heard all of the pastor's jokes. They're starting to repeat themselves in year 15. 
And you need to let God mature your affection for other Christians beyond the crush phase, if you will. Beyond the, hey, I I really like these people in the church. Because if you stay long enough, you need to let your affection mature beyond the crush phase to the I really love you phase. Because that's where the relational gold lies. It's the commitment to love someone that you'd never otherwise hang out with and watch God work in their lives slowly over time. After all, if if it is going to take him your entire lifetime to make you look more like Jesus, it's also going to take the entire lifetime of the person sitting next to you to make them look more like Jesus. But if you stay with them for a lifetime, what you get to see is God at work. And, and this is, you know, one, one of the weaknesses of moving from church to church is you shortcut your opportunity to see God at work because he seems to work very slowly most often. But then you get to see the beauty of his work emerge. So affection and patience and then affection and mission. I was stunned this week to read that it's the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq. 20 years ago. Did you catch that headline? 20 years ago, I was sitting around an orderly room in Fort McCoy, Wisconsin, uh, getting ready to go to the desert by running around in the ice. And that's about all you need to know uh, to understand military life. Um, And we watched the shock and awe thing happen on our TVs. And you did too, if you were alive. And it was astonishing. It was terrifying. Uh, It was amazing. It was 20 years ago. And 20 years later, I'm still in touch with people who are now fairly middle-aged adults who have lives and careers and kids of their own who I went overseas with. And there is still affection for each other. Where does this affection come from? Because we are not people who ever would have hung around together. I mean, I, a lot of my, uh, my unit that I served with was from the south side of Chicago. We, you know, I was from the suburbs of Chicago. We wouldn't naturally have crossed paths most often. Well, where does affection come from? Well, it comes from sharing in a mission and from sharing in the challenges of that mission. Well, guess what? That's church. You're, you're sharing in a mission. The, the mission is challenging. You actually have an enemy who's very wily and doesn't want you to complete the mission. But you have resources for completing the mission. God, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. God, the Holy Spirit dwells in the church. He's given you some tools, the word, the sacrament, prayer. He's put you on this mission to love each other and to love the world. And guess what? It's going to have some challenges. Uh, you just have to expect it's going to have some challenges. But one of the good outcomes of going through the challenges is that you're actually going to grow an affection for each other. And if you find that you're not growing in affection uh, for other Christians, one question, one diagnostic question that you might want to ask is, are you really on mission with other Christians? Are you doing challenging things alongside of other Christians? Because if you do, you'll grow in your affection for other Christians. Mission brings us together. 
All of that from greet each other with a holy kiss. God's project includes building a family on a mission that transcends the normal barriers that we create for each other. Finally, and last word from Thessalonians for the moment, accountability. God's family needs all of his message. Verse 27 is a strong verse. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is strong language. Swear before the Lord that you're going to read this letter to the whole church. Paul holds the church accountable that this letter be read not just generally, like when you get the letter, read it, rip it open, put it on the shelf, but read it to all the brothers. Why such a strong command for the letter to be read? I think there are a couple of reasons. There might be more reasons, but here are a few. Paul needs the whole church to know that he cares for them. Remember, his visit with them was interrupted. He had to leave. He hadn't been able to come back. He needs the whole church to know that his inability to return is not about his personal feelings. He needs all of them to know of his affection. But I think that this strong oath exists for at least one other further reason. Paul wants the first people who cracked the seal on the scroll of if that's how Thessalonians got to them to not just read it as selective instruction for a few people. He doesn't want the first readers to edit the message. Now, I'm drawing some conclusions here, but it's not hard to imagine that in a world where not everyone could read, that it would be the more elite members of the society that were able to read. And there are some harsh words of instruction in this letter for the elite members of society. It's not hard to imagine a world where it would be the, the patron class or maybe the client class who would be most likely to be able to read. And Paul has some on-the-point instructions for them. Some clients need to get jobs. Some patrons need to cut clients loose. People need to give up power. People need to give up leverage. And this goes in the direction of unifying the church. This also goes in the direction of esteeming the weakest among the congregation, the working class or the enslaved class, because these are the folks who might not be able to read. It's not like they could just pass First Thessalonians around. Well, they would have called it Thessalonians. They didn't know there was going to be a second Thessalonians. They would have just passed Thessalonians around and, they, and, and read it. They couldn't do that because not everybody could read. So what if you were dependent upon hearing the word of God but that you were also dependent on someone else reading it to you. You'd need someone to read you the whole message. So Paul says, read them the whole message. The people of God need the whole message of God. God's family needs all of his message. We need all of his message. I was thinking back to a pre-pandemic tour of the National Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Uh, if you're ever able to go, you should go. And if you go, you should make sure that you see uh, an intact copy of the Slave Bible. Have you heard of the Slave Bible? 
Do you know what that is? It was a Bible published in England in the early 1800s for use by missionaries to share the gospel with slaves. That's a good thing, right? Do you know that most of the slave Bible is edited? Do you know that it was uh, edited to remove whole sections of Scripture describing God bringing his people from slavery to freedom? So passages like Ephesians 6, servants be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh were retained. And among the excluded passages were Galatians 3. There were neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. Yet you are all one in Christ Jesus. All of God's people need all of God's message. The, the, the folks who were enslaved needed to hear the liberating power of the message. The people who did the enslaving also needed to hear the liberating power of the message. They needed to be liberated from different realities. But God is doing, through his word, work that is coextensive to all of who you are. Right, Because it would be completely appropriate to acknowledge that enslaved people were robbed of truth, but so were the enslavers if they didn't engage with the truth that was going to set them free from their own idols. We need all of the word too. We need all of the word however we get it, whether it is from listening to sermons, whether it is from our own Bible reading, whether it is from our... Uh, our Bible sharing in our men's and women's groups because God is working to transform the whole of who we are. And if you don't access the whole of his word, then um, it will be harder for that transformation to happen. We need the whole of his message because he's transforming the whole of who we are, spirit, soul, body, but it is his project. I have a shelf and here we'll end. I have a shelf in my basement, many shelves in my basement. In my home are many shelves. <laughs> On this particular shelf uh, are the half-built plastic models from a rainy summer vacation with the boys when they were young. When the rains came and drove us uh, indoors and then to the toy store and you're trying to figure out what can you do with boys uh, indoors for five days in rainy northern Michigan. You start to build plastic models, uh, and then the sun comes out, and you go outside, and you stop building plastic models forever. And they're up there, and you can look at those and say, man, those are, those are half-built projects, and, and they're never going to get completed. I, I don't actually know why I still have them. The gospel is not like that. The, the gospel is not a collection of half-built projects on God's shelf. God is completing his work. Assurance ultimately rests in the fact that it is, is his project. Assurance produces affection that we have for each other. And we're reminded that we need all of his word because he is transforming all of who we are. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon podcast. Subscribe to our podcast. And for more information about our church, our values, mission, and ministries, 
visit npcdublin.org.